so if you didn't pick up on it, basically we just told a lot of the story that we've been covering as adults, right? So in January, we started in Genesis, and we've been working our way through, and we just hit Joshua, right, when they hit the promised land. Now, as adults, I think we get a little jealous sometimes when the kids get to be up here and ask questions, and we have to sit here and listen to monologues, right? You're like, why don't I get to ask questions? Well, today is your lucky day. So what we're going to do, I want to invite Aaron and Angie up, and we're going to create a space just to actually have questions. Just be careful. It's a tricky stare. Yeah. We're going to create a space where we can ask questions. So uh, we've, we have a couple questions we'll start with, but then we also just want to kind of go live and allow you guys to ask questions from the Torah, right? So this is Genesis through Deuteronomy. Don't leave those texts. We're not getting into Joshua yet. And just create a space where you can ask questions, and we'll do our best to answer. Now, obviously, this is live, so we might rock it. We might not. <laughs> Give us a little bit of grace. Also, uh, because we are here today as a church family, we're going to try and keep it PG. Uh, so there are some topics that come up in the law and in the Torah that are a little, I don't know, more mature. And uh, so we're going to try and answer questions, but do so in a way that's appropriate for all the kids present. Make sense? All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send these guys a softball. Well, maybe not, but let's just, let's start with a real question. So I think one of the things that I hear from you guys regularly is, so you hear Jesus, right? And he seems so nice and friendly. And then you go back to the Torah and you're like, I don't know, this God feels a little grouchy sometimes, a little angry, maybe a little judgy. How do we reconcile that? How do we make sense of this sort of like perception of Jesus and perception of God in the Old Testament? Is that even accurate? Or is that just sort of a caricature that we carry around in our minds? One of you go for it. I can go, yeah. So I think there's a little bit of, you have Jesus, and there's a caricature of, like, he's meek and mild in the New Testament, gracious, compassionate, all these sorts of things. But then on one level, I think we also forget that Jesus had a lot of things to say that to us as moderns sounds harsh and perhaps kind of like, hey, hold on a second. That's not, you know, the lovey-dovey, make-me-feel-good kind of verse. So, for example... Jesus speaks about hell more than anyone else in, in the Bible. He also has a lot to say about judgment, and he has a passage in Matthew 11 where he's talking to or about all these different cities in the region, and he's saying, woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. You're going to have it actually worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. So are you trying to tell me that my question is silly, that actually we have an understanding of Jesus that maybe is actually not grounded often in the scriptures themselves? I think so. I mean, I, I don't want to push the caricature too far, but I think there is instances where we gravitate towards the passages and the teachings of Jesus that make us feel good and are comfortable to our sort of modern Western way of thinking. But when you actually read through the four Gospels, and even if you continue on into the rest of the New Testament, there is a lot of stuff in there on judgment and what it means to live rightly in light of who God is and what so he's done for us. What you'd say is there's continuity, and then what about in the Old Testament, right? Sometimes we focus on the parts of the Old Testament that feel like God's a little judgy, but there's actually a lot in there that mirrors sort of Jesus's grace and compassion and kindness too. Yeah, so I think of when you think about what the Old Testament, in particular the Torah, has to say about the character of God, the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible comes from the Torah, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. 
And so when the writers of the Bible think back and reflect on the character of God, they reflect upon those attributes of God the most in the Old Testament. And so for an ancient Israelite, if you were to go maybe ask them, you know, thousands of years ago, tell me about God, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, would have been the first thing I think to come out of their mouth. Which sounds a lot like how we think of Jesus in the Gospels. Sure, yeah, totally. And so I think back to what you said just a moment ago. There is, I think, more continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament than I think sometimes we think. I think part of the reason why perhaps we might perceive there be to some discontinuity between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, which I would really push back against, I think is a lot of it is because three-quarters of our English Bible is the Old Testament. So just by nature, you're going to get more stories about some of these things, which so is more opportunity for like things like judgment and like, whoa, that's harsh, that's you know, out of the blue sort of a thing. But then when you kind of condense it and put it together, you see, you know, there's consistency throughout Old and New Testament with a lot of what we might think of as, quote, harsh. Angie, you want to throw anything in there? Yeah, no, I don't know. Is this on? Yeah. Um, I think, too, about when we talk about God and in, in giving of the law and how sometimes God seems a little bit more rigid in his giving of the law, maybe versus Jesus, who seems to talk more about, you know, commands to be compassionate and forgiving. And we see his example of dining with the marginalized. Um, but Jesus also has some things to say where he more. Do you want to give her your mic? That one's going out. There a little go. bit more rigid. So uh, when I think about um, Jesus talking about uh, divorce. He's questioned about divorce, um, or and he's questioned about uh, adultery. He talk. He not only does he affirm what God has instructed regarding adultery, but he says that even if you look with lust in your heart, that th then you are guilty. So in some aspects of the law, I think what Jesus does is. Um, and we can kind of. I think we're going to yeah. talk about the law. Yeah, you go in the Sermon on the Mount, and there's some like really. Yes. Intense Jesus thinks he actually ratchets up right. he what the law dials it in. Yeah. Um, but he, what he does is that he focuses on the heart behind the moral imperatives behind some of the things that are given in the law to illustrate what's actually at the core of God's instruction. That's good. So I'm going to turn it back to you guys. And I know this is sort of like we don't do church like this very often. But this is sort of your... Raise your hand. What's the question you've been holding on to for the last six months moment? It would have been awesome if you had sent it to me, especially if it's a really hard one, but feel free. So any, any questions or should we just go on to another one? Who is going to be brave? All right, Mr. Pack. It was, was it good or was it, you're like, it didn't solve the question, yeah. Okay. Okay. Sure. So Genesis 6, the Nephilim, there's these sort of characters that are sons of God uh, and framed as sons of God. And then they uh, propagate with, uh, with, with women. And then they have these offspring, 
that are sort of like, who are these offspring? Do you want to try and sure. dive in? I think we did. Did we do a cutting room floor on yeah, this? Yeah, we did a short little we'll the conversation room floor. on this. But it is a passage that, yes, sounds strange to us. And I think, like, throughout church history, there's been a few different views, interpretations on this. So some might take the not supernatural view, where this is just, like, kings and rulers, human rulers that are having uh, relations with other women. Because son of God is a way you could refer to a ruler in the ancient yeah. Near East, right? So you could interpret it that way. Does that make sense? And then that same phrase, sons of Elohim or sons of God, also is a way to reference spiritual beings. So things that we cannot see but are nonetheless real in the scriptural narrative. I lean more towards that because it explains a lot of the rest of the story that's to come. And so what you end up having is, is these supernatural beings having relationships with human women. And it sounds strange. But just remember that the core to the foundation of the gospel story is Mary being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not equating that necessarily. But just the virgin birth is not normal, right? And so there's not normal things in scripture that we hold on to. But back to Genesis 6, what you have is supernatural beings have relations with women. And from that become these very large giants. And when you read on into the rest of the Torah, what ends up happening is that oftentimes these authors are associating, think about the numbers 13, the spies about to go into the promised land. There's giants in the land. And right? they even say a, a line in there about the Nephilim. The Nephilim yes. And this idea of they're so big, we are like grasshoppers under their feet. Remember? And this is why the generation goes back into the desert. For sure. And so what ends up happening is a lot of people actually think that what Israel is going into when they go in to have the conquest of the promised land is that they're confronting these giant creatures. And this is what's what, perhaps one of the main battles that they're having to face. This also helps explain, in addition to, so in Genesis 3, you have what we traditionally call the fall. So Adam and Eve, they take, they see the fruit, they take the fruit and they eat it, and it's pleasing to their own eyes. The same set of language is being described in Genesis 6. These sons of Elohim see that the daughters of men are it's beautiful in our English language, but it's the same word good or tov. It's tov, yeah. And so they see that the women are good, they take the women, and they take them for themselves. So it's basically another fall narrative, but this time for supernatural beings. And so you have the human rebellion in Genesis 3. Genesis 6, I think, is the, quote, supernatural rebellion or fall that you have. And so we have two falls essentially happening in the early chapters of Genesis. It sounds crazy. So you feel like that answered your question? Awesome. Thank you. And, uh, and there's, there's lots, there's literally commentaries on this. There are all kinds of questions. This is a question that has been wrestled with throughout history, and this is what we got ourselves into by allowing you to ask whatever questions you want. Maybe we can, uh, I know there's a question that's come to me just about, like, women in the Torah and specifically the law, and there's some passages there where you're like, huh, this doesn't exactly feel like super honoring of women. Uh, I don't know if you guys want to take a stab at like, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, so um, of course this, this hits me personally as a woman and there have been many times um, in my spiritual journey where there have been passages that have been like, oh, like really? And I don't know if you ladies can relate, but it, maybe some of you gentlemen can relate too. It's just like, oh man, like this is really hard and um, you have to wrestle with um, really what comes down to it is that this is a fallen culture in, um, in the Torah. The Israelite culture is a fallen culture. Um, so where I derive 
kind of my basis for understanding is going back to the Genesis 1, 2, and 3 texts. So in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, God makes humanity, um, and the language that's used there is very egalitarian um, in the sense that men and women are equally created in the image of God. So he creates humanity, male and female. There's no real um, hierarchical distinction in terms of value or worth. Like we are both equally made in the image of God. Um, the image of God is actually an interesting concept as well, and I think that you guys have talked about this um, in sermons, but um, what it means to be created in the image of God culturally, the way that that was understood, was that something that was in the image of something, this is often language that is used to describe royalty and kings, um, were, if you were made or sent in the image of a king in this culture, you were their ambassador and you were their representative. Um, so to be made in the image of God means that we are to act as though we are God's representation here on earth. We are supposed to be doing the things that God did, we are, or that God would do if he were physically present, um, in, embodied. So as we go out into the world, that's our mission. So men and women share that mission, share that identity equally in Genesis 1. Which, project was radical. There is no equivalent culture, there's no cultural equivalent at that time. So what's interesting, right, is the modern critique that like, hey, these passages, am I like popping like popcorn up here? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if it's you. <laughs> Can I try it may, this it may not be you. We'll do musical mics. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know like in popcorn when the speed increases or decreases, you know it's ready? I feel like it was just increasing a little bit right there. So the very, the thing that's interesting is the very critique used, oh, they're back. Uh, the very critique used to evaluate these passages about sort of women not being valued is actually grounded in biblical value for women. That literally no one thought that way until the Bible said men and women were made in the image of God. And then that is the rationale that is used to then critique the Bible. So without the biblical canon, you actually cannot have the argument that those passages don't honor women enough. It's actually the, re the reason we even think that women have the value they do today is because of Genesis 1. So the whole Western culture, the critique that we have of, let's say, the scriptures, is founded in the values that are created and espoused by the scriptures. Just real quick on Genesis 2 and 3. So Genesis 2 describes the creation of, of Adam and Eve. And the language there, again, is very egalitarian. Um, Eve is created as a ezer kednego in Hebrew, which I don't feel like there's a good English um, description of what that actually means. Kenegdo is like as or corresponding to Adam. So you get this like helper suitable for Adam, but really the language is like, describing two halves that fit together as a whole. And um, the husband and the wife leave their mother and father, not just their mother, and they come together and two become one flesh. So the whole description of marriage, one man, one woman, leaving mother and father is this continuation of this description from Genesis 1 where you have humanity imaging God in two forms, male and female. Um, and that ezer word, that helper word, is, is a word that is only used throughout Scripture to describe God in relation to hum humanity. So it's not like a subordinate 
position, it's a, it's a descriptor that's used for God as well. And, um, and then in Genesis 3, you can't forget Genesis 3. I feel like what we see after Genesis 3 when we read the consequences of the fall, and one of the consequences of the fall is this distorted um, relationship between men and women. And so throughout all cultures and all times, practically without exception, we see this dynamic between men and women where women are oppressed. Um, and Jesus in the New Testament, um, and even actually in the Old Testament, I'll have Aaron explain a little bit more on this because he he's really de- has a really detailed knowledge of this. But um, we see God in giving the laws, giving the instructions with regards to relations to women is actually compared to the surrounding culture is actually radical. So we we come in with our culture, we read the Bible and we're like, wow, this is like not fair, this is not equal, this is oppressive towards women. But in the ancient Near Eastern context, Israelites would have been hearing the law and reading the law and they were heads would have been exploding with how progressive the rights and the provisions were towards women. Yeah, and I think it, it, it gets at this idea. Oh, it's working. It's working. Yeah. It works now. Okay. So this gets also at the idea of God meeting Israel where they are at in their culture. And so you have the divine ideal, what, it, what it's meant to be, Genesis 1 and 2, on the first pages of Scripture. But then as the story goes on, God is meeting Israel where they are at and pushing and pulling them towards what he eventually wants them to have. And so you have within the Torah itself, and then later Scripture comments back on this, is that there's laws and instructions that don't necessarily line up with the divine ideal in Genesis 1 and 2. So, for example, in Matthew 19, Jesus has a question about divorce. And so Jesus is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus responds, what does Moses say? He goes back to the Torah, and then the Pharisees quote back the Torah to him. But then Jesus says to them in Matthew 19, it's because of your hardness of heart that Moses allowed this. So what Jesus is saying there is that the permission given in Deuteronomy 24 for the allowance of divorce in that context was really a divine accommodation. It's not the ideal. It doesn't line up with Genesis 1 and 2. And so what this gets at is a way of understanding and reading the Torah. Uh, think about for us in our own life. Aren't you glad that God doesn't come right up to you and say, get your act together. You have three seconds and poof. We, we expect perfection right now, right? God doesn't do that. And God didn't do that with Israel. God accommodates, meets Israel where they are at in that particular culture, gives them instructions that is inches and pushes them forward to a, a higher and better standard compared to the rest of the culture. And over time, God is working his purposes out through creation to the point where later in the New Testament, Galatians 3, Paul will say that the law was temporary. It was for a season, essentially, to bring Israel, to bring the storyline to the, the time of the Messiah, Jesus. And so in particular, I think there's one example that we can maybe highlight a little bit here. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 21, we get these instructions from, let me open this up real quick. We get these instructions from God through Moses about what men are allowed and not allowed to do when they go off to war and take female captives. Now, I'm trying to keep it a little bit, you know, vague, you know, because we have family here. But just imagine in an ancient culture, ancient tribal culture, what warrior men would do when they take female captives. That's sort of the context. And so what you have in Deuteronomy 21 is this. I'm just going to read this paragraph real quick. Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 10, says this. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife. You bring her home to your house, 
and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off her clothes in which she was captured, and she shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother for a full month. Keep that detail in mind. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall not let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Now, again, that's in your Bible. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. Now, what Angie was alluding to is really important. This idea that in comparison to Israel's neighbors, these laws, we might say, are radically progressive. In in the best. The neighbors had zero provisions. So you went in war, you did whatever you want, because you won. And it's free reign if you're a so male So no warrior. culture had any limitations at this point. And so notice, it's kind of hard to see without having the verses up there, but in verse 13, there was a full month waiting period that Israelite warrior men were to have. They couldn't just immediately go in and sort of gratify their, des- their desires. And then when you get to the end in verse 14, there's all these prohibitions of what the men are not allowed to do. You can't just treat them as property, get rid of them, discard them because they no longer meet your standards. And then in context, through t- verses 10 through 14, it's not just like concubine or maidservant that's in view. We're talking about marriage here. So again, it's the ideal of working towards marriage is what Moses is instructing Israel to do. Now again, big picture, what you have here is God through Moses meeting Israel where they are at. This is a, a very different culture from what we're used to, and rightly so. And so I think the ethical standard we're to have is not compare 21st century values to ancient Near Eastern values, but compare and contrast ancient Near Eastern values across the board more horizontally. And what you see here is, yes, this is not the divine ideal of Genesis 1 and 2, but this is, again, God meeting Israel where they are at and bringing them an inch forward to what eventually what you have in Galatians 3. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor male and female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And so by the time you get to Paul, we're coming much closer back to Genesis 1 and 2. And we'll head fully in Revelation 21. So if you have more questions on that, feel free to ask Aaron. There's obviously a lot of these. Uh, And I think just as a church, we just want to recognize and pretend like, not pretend like these passages don't exist, but actually have conversations and initiate spaces where we say, what do we do with this, right? Because the truth is, these are in our scriptures. And we can't just pretend like they don't exist, but we need to lean in and consider, so who is God if this is our scripture? Who are we? And what are we striving to be and become? What does it look like to worship this God? When some of these things are in our text and we don't really like them. Um, Maybe one last question before we shift. Yeah. Okay, Genesis 12, there's all these promises to Abraham. How does that sort of like, how is that being fulfilled uh, through Jesus, his ministry, his coming? When do you guys want to take a stab at that? Were there any promises in particular that you were wondering about? Like blessing the nations through him in particular, like something like that? That's great. 
I, I think there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it. Um, I would say that this is something that is already happening, um, but there's also a future component to it as well. I could say already and not yet. So already we've seen the gospel go out, um, God's salvation, uh, his instructions that bring life and flourishing to humanity. We've seen that go global. Um, so you could say um, that through Abraham, um, the law and then the redemption through Jesus um, has been given um, and it's been given to all people. Um, however, I think there's also this longing that we have for complete and total redemption, um, the vanquishing of sin once and for all, the new heavens and the new earth, the new, you know, dwelling with God um, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's something, you know, all nations will be blessed um, in the end as well. So I think there's kind of an already and not yet component to that. Well, it's clear, like through Jesus, right, the, this people group, clearly there were people outside of Israel that were being blessed uh, before Jesus came. But you see this radical expansion, right? Within 300 years, I mean, the church is literally all over the world. People are worshiping Jesus. Every people group, right, is hoping to be included. You get in the end of Revelation, you have this idea of every tribe, every tongue, and then you have, like, imagine, when you imagine eternity with Jesus, remember, it's not just people that look like you or sound like you, every people group throughout time. So there will be a 5th century person in North Africa. You'll have all these different people that look and speak and have different assumptions. All those people uh, are meant to be included and are included through Jesus, fulfilling the promise of Genesis 12. Obviously, we could go into that a lot. That's an awesome one. Before we shift to worship, though, I just want to maybe, so how do you shift from a Q&A where you're talking about these questions? I mean, I think that's one of them. Like, how do you shift to worshiping God, right? He keeps his promises. He's a God who extends himself to all the people of the earth. So from the Torah, like, how do we shift into worship, you know? And in a minute, the worship team is going to come up. We're going to sing a song or two, like, how do we shift from Q&A, why should we worship God in a minute uh, when we've just talked about some of these passages that make us really uncomfortable? Why should we shift to worship? All right. There's a lot you could say here, but I think a couple things. First off, we've, in the Q&A right now, we've brought up some of the tough passages of the Torah. But go, go home and read the Torah. There is a ton in there that is celebratory, that is awesome, that is actually really radically progressive even for our own day. So s some of the things as far as every seven years you get a year off, debts are canceled, every property shifts back to the original owners, and so you have this abundant celebration every seven years. Every 49 and 50 years, the same thing happens. Uh, Deuteronomy 14 speaks of 10% of Israel's tithe and finances was to go to an annual celebration and throw a party. So imagine us doing that. 10% of our tithe is meant for just one big, massive party. Deuteronomy Let's do 14. it. <laughs> Let's do it, right? Let's institute that. that and so, epic. But it's just awesome because part of what God has given Israel is these, these gifts of tangible, real celebrations to honor and worship God. And that was embedded into their culture throughout Israel's history. Now, as you kind of think about that as the trajectory of Scripture continues, is that Jesus comes and he says in Matthew 5, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them to bring them to their intended goal. Romans 10 says that Christ is the end or the telos of the law, meaning that this whole thing is pointing to Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, I want to follow Jesus. And I know that sounds simple, but one of the ways that we follow Jesus is that we read the scriptures that Jesus read himself. 
and we saturate our minds and our hearts and our whole lives in the same text that Jesus would have saturated his own mind and heart in as well. And so Jesus, he comes onto the scene, and he's constantly saying, have you not heard what Moses said? Have you not heard what the law and the prophets said? And I think for us as a community of disciples of Jesus, it's going back to these texts that, yes, might seem strange to us, that we actually begin to see God's purposes and plans and promises unfold. And we begin to actually see more and more the character of God revealed in Jesus in these texts. Jesus expected his followers in Luke 24 to go back and be able to read the law and to be able to see that Jesus was on the main storyline of that entire section of scripture. And I think that becomes one of the keys for us as we seek to follow Jesus. Are we really following Jesus through the scriptures in that? That's good. Thank you, guys. I want to invite the worship team up. Um, I think one of my sort of hopes in doing this is, one, that we are a people who are not, not afraid to ask questions. And we are a community that feels like we have permission to ask questions. Um, and then also, I think for me, as we've been going through the story, the main storyline that sort of just follows me it's just how gracious and kind God is in the midst of Israel's utter failures. I mean, you read through the Torah, like how many times have we seen Israel be like, oh, I thought you said this, God, but I'm going to go this way. And I think for us, if we're honest, most of us can relate to that a little bit, right? The discontinuity between where God has called us to be and where we actually are, uh, what God has called us to do and what we are capable of. And one of the reasons we turn to God in worship and this is the same God, right, revealed in the New Testament that is revealed in the Torah, is that God is kind and gracious to us. And we return back to worship to say, all right, God, yeah, I'm a mess, but you're amazing. So I just want to invite us to stand and worship God. And I also want to just invite us, wherever we're at in our process of faith, that questions are okay, and feel free to come and chat with us if you have more. And even as you enter worship now, you can talk to God about the questions you have, even as we seek to worship him.